0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 14th, 2022. Hard to summarize our age, very odd. Perhaps one way of thinking about it is we live in an age of hidden histories, of hidden stories, of hidden narratives, uh, or at least perceived hidden stories and narratives. And in that age, it requires special people to interpret, to look, to figure out, to tell those stories. We've had a number of these people on the show before. uh, And actually in the last couple of days, Uh, two days ago, we had Luke Mogelson who embedded himself in the January 6th crowd. He works for the New York Times and the New Yorker. Uh, He embedded himself to learn about the hidden history of January 6th, and he wrote about it in his new book, a beautifully written book, an important new book, The Storm is Here, an American Crucible. Another great interpreter of um, our hidden history is the progressive journalist and radio presenter Tom Hartman. He in fact has a whole series of hidden histories and his latest one is the hidden history of neoliberalism. He came on the show yesterday to talk about the way in which politics and economics is intimately connected and how America and the American economy in particular is a kind of puppet game in which we puppets are being played or controlled by the rich men who control uh, American capitalism. Um, When it comes to hidden histories, I did one this morning, too, with the New York Times writer David Enrich. He has a new story out, a new book out, Servants of the Damned, giant law firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice. Enrich tells us the hidden history of big law and its connection with Trump and how... The big lawyers are pulling the strings. And we are once again back to a a kind of hidden history or maybe a critique or an analysis of hidden history with my guest today, Sarah Kenzier. She's one of America's most energetic um, and popular writers, a great critic of Donald Trump. She's been on the show a couple of times before. She has a brand new book out, They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America and uh, Sarah is joining us from her home in St. Louis. Uh, Sarah, um, are we living in the age of hidden histories? Or is that itself a kind of mythology?
1: No, I, I think we are. Um, you know, my previous book, Hiding in Plain Sight, uh, spoke to that. I was born and raised in the age of hidden history. Uh, you know, I was born at the end of the Carter administration, and as I got older um, and began to have access to the internet, access to information and archives, um, you know, that is how I discovered uh, the true story of you know things that had kind of mystified me as a child as to how we got where we are. Um, you know it's tough sometimes to draw demarcation points um, in American history. you see a lot of overlapping trends, but I do think the election of Ronald Reagan uh, was one and I think the kind of um, you know criminal elite cabal that manifested during Iran-Contra, um, you know a, a transnational one, Is another, um, which is why I think, you know, in the previous books that you mentioned, your recent guests, they're also looking back into that, um, into the mid to late 80s, um, you know, into this uh, era of greed and unchecked corruption and unpunished crimes. And I think now we see uh, the culmination of that. We see the results of that. We often see literally the exact same people, um, you know, who were involved in those 80s crimes uh, holding power now.
0: It's an interesting thesis, and uh, it's one that I talked to uh, Luke Mergelson about. I brought up uh, Richard Hofstadter's great uh, essay um, uh, from the 1964 edition of Harper's Magazine, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. He talks about paranoia as a kind of political discourse, but that was more than 50 years ago. What's changed, Sarah? Uh, I mean, i'm I'm not suggesting you're wrong, but was there ever a time in American history when there wasn't paranoia? You talk about exposing the great crimes. Maybe some of that's true, but uh, in uh, over the last fifty years. But the criminality, if you want to use that word of the American regime or of American society, certainly goes back to slavery and the appropriation of lands from Native Americans. So, None of this is really new, is it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I write about that in the book as well. Um, and you also see, you know, definitive conspiracies. Uh, you know, the beginning of the Civil War was a conspiracy. The secessionist movements that formed in those southern states were the business plot of the 1930s. So, yes, um, you know, a lot of that is not new. Um, you know, the Hofstadter essay emphasizes, uh, you know, right wing rhetorical um, and you know tactics that were used to demonize people and uh, narrow the scope of political discourse and punish people um, who were innocent and how toxic that is. And we certainly see that now. But, you know, before I started focusing so heavily on America, my focus was the former um, Soviet states of uh, Central Asia, um, you know, which had become autocracies. And when I was studying it, you know, from about 2000 to around 2012, uh, paranoia ran wild. Conspiracy theories, uh, lies, propaganda, and so forth ran wild. But what I noticed is that after a point paranoia kind of crosses into credulity because every official account becomes doubted and challenged because they're not giving reliable information. There's not transparency. There's entrenched corruption. And I think that we are, you know, obviously not quite at the point of totalitarian Uzbekistan or something, but we are edging towards that where folks are not sure what to believe. And I think there is reason for that. Uh, you know, we have not had proper investigations, proper hearings. Uh, we've had a demise of investigative journalism, newspapers gutted or bought up by hedge funds. Uh, we've replaced blogging uh, with, you know, social media memes that, that can transmit very far, but sometimes, uh, you know, do not say the whole story or show evidence and sources. And so there's a kind of, um, I don't want to call it a dumbing down. I, I, I think Americans have been deceived and I think they've been betrayed and I think they're left uh, you know, bereft of the kind of context and, and evidence that would allow them uh, to form conclusions about what's happening in their political environment uh, in an informed manner.
0: It's interesting, Sarah. I think you and I have had this conversation before That uh, is comparison with Central Asia post-Soviet states. I was in Kazakhstan doing a speech uh, just before the uprising or the violence there last year. And one of the things that really struck me about Kazakhstan was the surreal quality of reality on the one hand there were these immense palaces absurdly pompous and on the other hand the physical reality of the cracked streets and the anarchy and the absence of any pedestrian sidewalks for example are we seeing that and and I live in San Francisco where that surreal reality seems to be replicated in enormous wealth living side by side with massive homelessness are we seeing um, that kind of surreal reality in America perhaps where you are in the Midwest what you used to call or what you satirically call flyover territory you wrote about it in your first book and does and how is that connected with the increasing ubiquity of conspiracy theories theory if we can't trust reality then we can't trust stories either can we
1: i mean i think with with stories there's an emotional component and then there's an evidence component and sometimes they go hand in hand and sometimes they diverge i think the comparison <clears throat> excuse me to um from of kazakhstan and maybe i don't know if you're talking about the capital city uh until recently called North Sultan after their yeah dictator. it was Nor-
0: <laughs> Sultan. have you been there
1: yeah uh, no, now it's back to being called um, Astana, which literally means capital, and that was the original name. Yeah. Was Eno that A's. their concession
0: to, uh, to, to, to to the rebels?
1: Um, Well, it was called Astana back in the very end of the Soviet Union when they were trying to make sure Russia didn't take over by putting a capital in the north. And, you know, that way if Russia invaded, they're like, you know, hey, this is Kazakhstan. Look, it's even called capital. You know, it was kind of a a preemptive strike there. Then when their uh, dictator, I guess you could say he stepped down, he still wielded uh, influence. Uh, You know, he started naming everything after himself as he was already doing. You know, there were already universities and streets and so forth. Um, And, you know, now they're trying to take a Heart, that personality cult, which I think is very interesting, we're seeing the you know de Nazar biification of Kazakhstan. Meanwhile, in the United States, uh, you know we barely got rid of a proto autocrat demagogue reality TV tabloid master um, in Donald Trump who I think is very much in the Central Asian kleptocratic mode you know a lot of people uh, would compare him to you know Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin or these more well-known dictators I saw him as a mafia state actor with a personality cult that he very much embraced and that's the um, that's the Central Asian model and then of course it, it went on to be revealed that he was in fact intimately Tied to a lot of oligarchs and mafiosos mm. from the Soviet Union, and it was not a um, it was a not a metaphor; it was uh, very much a literal tie. Um, but yeah, it, you know, in terms of how we define reality, what I found most disorienting, I guess, since the last time I spoke to you, which was right in the beginning of the pandemic, it was in April 2020, is how much uh, Americans are seeing each other. Purely through screens and how much they are basing their judgments on how other people in the country live and what the area they live in is like uh, purely through online information. And that's why we've had these major um, political developments that that do demarcate states uh, in various ways, like the repeal of Roe versus Wade, you know, one day I woke up here in Missouri, and my bodily autonomy was signed away by my attorney general. And you know, that is my life. Now, I thought that um, folks would understand that that's a terrible thing to have happen and have sympathy. Uh, What I found instead is, you know, despite me living in in St. Louis, uh, a very heavily Democratic city, Uh, You know, people were saying it was our fault, even though we hadn't voted for this. And they were making gross generalizations about my state, my city, uh, and calling for secessionist movements, whether a, quote, blue one in California, which has the largest number of Republican voters, or a, quote, red one in Texas, which has an enormous number of Democratic voters. And so I've, I've really tried to stress there's no such thing As a red and blue state, uh, you know, in every city, every region is far more complicated and nuanced than people give it, uh, you know, credit for, whether it's people viewing my part of the country as flyover country or people viewing your part of the country as this place that's, you know, only run by, you know, Silicon Valley uh, tech billionaires. You know, it's just stereotyping. But in this heated environment, which is also an environment of profound trauma. Um, I I think it's very dangerous. You know, I I think that there are a lot of people that want to capitalize off of these generalizations that want to possibly really push uh, secessionist movements forward and mainstream them. And I think that would be an absolute violent, horrific disaster uh, for the United States.
0: Sarah, let's get to the heart of your book, if it has a heart, if it's... has a heart, you have a heart, but maybe it's a critique of the notion even of a heart. Uh, they knew how a culture of conspiracy keeps America complacent. You have um, a piece running actually on Lit Hub today. Uh, it's entitled, Sarah Kenzie are on Trump lands, criminal distortions of American reality. Now, everyone in America knows that Donald Trump is not Sarah Kenzie's friend, but are you suggesting, Sarah, that Trump Trump's greatest, uh, the the, the most damaging thing that Trump has done, and there are many, many damaging things that he's destroyed American reality?
1: No, I I think American reality was faltering on its own. I, I think people underestimate uh, the profundity of the digital age, you know, and I'm of the last generation, I think, to have grown up in the analog age. You know, I, I got online when I was about 15 or 16. So my earliest memories were formed in that. And the, the whole concept of memory, um, you know, and how we keep track of it and what we value and how we see different eras. You know, I remember when a, a memory would just be something you couldn't Instantly trace back, and you couldn't instantly find the people in your life before then. And the place where you grew up was just, you know, a figment in your mind, and you couldn't just find your old house on Google Maps. Like, I think all of this, and of course, the surveillance aspect of it has had a profound impact on Americans. Um, We also had, you know, at the same time in the beginning of the 21st century, an era of incredible deceit from the Bush administration. You know, we had a war built on false pretenses. We had a mass trauma with 9-11, um, you know, that also bolstered a lot of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, in part because they, uh, in my view, you know, did obfuscate, uh, you know, points of what happened. And of course, they did use Yeah, I, I take all that. But, you war. know,
0: uh, Iraq and Bush was a rather a uh, sad attempt, uh, a, a, a sad repeat of history. Of you know, first as tragedy, then as a of farce of, of of Vietnam and of um, and of Nixon. Um, last uh, last night, uh, I, I went to the 1974 movie, The Conversation, the Coppola movie, which reflects an America equally disoriented. In, equally paranoid we did a show with Kevin Boyle on Nixon and his paranoia what's the difference between Iraq and Vietnam or between even Nixon and uh, Nixon and, and Trump not much, i don't think it?
1: there's a big difference between the individuals who are committing the corrupt or criminal acts or you know um the level of paranoia they have you know any proto-dictator gets very insular very paranoid very angry i think the biggest uh difference between now and then are our institutions and their willingness and ability to enforce accountability. You know, when I read about the 70s and Watergate and the Church Committee and the Pike Committee and the Pentagon Papers and the robust uh, media landscape that existed in which all of this could be discussed um, and the, you know, relative, I don't want to say economic equality, but, you know, they did not have the, you know, billionaire overlords and this incredible income inequality that makes it very difficult um, for a lot of folks to stay in media or even run for office in politics. Uh, Back then, you know, it seems like glory days. It seems like the public had leverage through elections, through protests, and most notably through journalism and documentation that they don't have now. You know, right now, crimes can be exposed. Crimes can even be confessed to by the perpetrators uh, on national television. You know, Trump has done that twice with obstruction of justice alone. Does anything happen, though, after that in terms of accountability? in terms of punishment or, or a deep-rooted investigation. No, not so far. Um, you know we saw that with the Mueller probe with Cy Vance. Uh, you know now we see it with Mary Garland. and they act afraid. They either act afraid or complicit um, or co-opted. Uh, it's, it really depends on the individual and the institution. But that's the biggest difference I've seen is just the failures of these bodies that are supposed to enforce accountability to keep that paranoid, ranting, angry, working against the public interest sort of individual in check. Our checks and balances um, are what has eroded since then.
0: Sarah, you talk about something uh, you describe as apocalypse uh, light, what Americans receive from their deep state false prophets was apocalypse light um do we need apocalypse heavy is that the real truth I mean what's the truth about all this I would like to avoid
1: apocalypse heavy um one of the things I discussed isn't that the truth Sarah is what true
0: isn't aren't we living at a time of apocalypse heavy rather than light you're critical of apocalypse light because you think it's a false reflection of reality yeah i mean what i'm
1: referring to with that term um you know we've always had these kind of doomsday prophets you know who say the end of the world is this year you know we saw that in um 2012 you know we see it all the time and then when it doesn't happen uh they just move the date they're like oh don't worry it's it's still coming you know the, the rapture or whatever it is they believe in is still going to happen just you know hang tight and i kind of see that with the people who are waiting for justice uh to be served you know we have an evangelical cult of bureaucracy. It's like the world's most boring cult. Um, At the same time, we have honest to God kind of apocalyptic things happening with climate catastrophes, with, uh, you know, entrenched corruption, with, you know, all of these very um, unnerving things, you know, of course, with the pandemic happening simultaneously. And and one of the things I did trace back to the 80s was this kind of uh, pro-apocalypse stance uh, of the Reagan- era um particularly when it came to fossil fuel companies and the environment where they you know i think some of them were just cynics uh you know putting on a pretense of piety saying you know hey we don't need to actually rein in exxon because the apocalypse is coming the rapture is coming the end of the world is nigh so really let's just you know make some money while we're here like i think some of it was cynicism and greed i think some of it is um true believers put in a position of power. And I think George Bush's administration, um, you know, certainly had that in the way that they discussed the Iraq war. And I don't think Trump really is very invested in any of this religious stuff. But the people around him, people like um, Mike Pompeo and others, they are. And it's a very bad idea to base policy around the rapture. It's a very bad idea to appoint people to your administration who are pro-apocalypse so you know i I would hope we'd all be able to get on the same page and uh you know not wish for that but uh unfortunately we're living in 2022 and um it's uh, not going so well
0: well maybe we need to get on the same apocalypse uh uh, sarah uh, you you write uh the caricature of the conspiracy theorist has been weaponized by those seeking to protect a corrupt status quo are you then arguing that the conspiracy theorist might be right? I mean, do you think of yourself as a conspiracy theorist? Technically,
1: by definition, I would be because I examine conspiracy theories or I examine actual government conspiracies. You know, I did this when I studied Uzbekistan, and I do this when I study um, the United States. and to you know give a couple examples, the Epstein-Maxwell operation was a conspiracy. It was a secret plot by government or non-state actors to carry out evil acts against the public. Good. January 6th. And that. um, Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, Sarah, let's, let's go back to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. What are you saying? That that was a a government plot that Epstein was. Not not quite.
1: Well, it was a combination. I mean, I think government, uh, Epstein had influence over a number of government officials because he kept luring them, or they went voluntarily, uh, into the fold in terms of participating in his trafficking scheme, either as a, a rapist or in terms of the many lawyers who, who were linked to the government. That Bill he surrounded Clinton or
0: with. Trump, do you think either of those were involved in this?
1: Trump was sued in court for raping a 13-year-old procured by Epstein. So yeah, he, he's certainly somebody who is um, tied into this. And Dershowitz, his lawyer, um, you know, also prevented Epstein from being uh, and prosecuted. And Prince Andrew. Yeah, and Prince Andrew. And, um, you know, Ken Starr, uh, who died yesterday, was another Epstein uh, lawyer who was heavily involved in the U.S. government. So you see an enormous number um, of overlapping ties. And you also see ties, you know, to actors and. Saudi Arabia, um, in Israel. You know, Galen Maxwell's father got a very lavish uh, Israeli state funeral. He, he was uh, allegedly a Mossad agent who also freelanced um, with uh, the Russian mafia and, uh, you know, others in the Soviet Union at the time, um, providing information. So it's a very complicated conspiracy. And we, we know a lot about it, but we don't know Everything. We don't have all the evidence. We don't know everything that happened because they've been covering it up for several decades. And so what are we left with? We're left with theories. You know, that that is what happens when people obfuscate and cover up an incredible act of corruption. All you can really do is theorize about it. I think that that's very distinct than, um, you know, what people like Alex Jones do. You know, they are propagandists, they are liars, uh, generally hateful people who use the veneer of the conspiracy theorists. You know, they pretend that they are the sole source of truth, that they're just asking questions and just trying to, you know, dig up information on, on powerful evil people, and then they lie. You know, he lied about Sandy Hook, which is one of the cruelest things I, I've ever seen. You know, he lied about a lot of things. But what they usually do, what a really good propaganda weaponized conspiracy does is it has core grains of truth uh that's not true with his sandy hook theories but when someone for example wants to ask questions about 9-11 like um why wasn't it prevented why did our intelligence agencies fail uh who benefited from this act those are valid questions but they often get lumped in with things like the planes weren't real they were cgi creations oh, yeah. you know which in my view are not um valid questions so, so or sarah what would
0: you say to someone who, who who would be listening or watching this and think well sarah has her theory of Epstein it can't be proved he's dead now who knows what makes her different maybe not so much from Alex Jones as you say was just a straightforward criminal is a straightforward criminal but conspiracy theorists on the right is is it because your theories are right and theirs aren't
1: I mean sometimes I have the same theories as people on the right when it comes to Epstein, I mean, you know, with Epstein, there was such reluctance to discuss him openly that simply saying this is a child trafficker with links to some of the most powerful people in the world, that used to be considered a controversial thing to say. Uh, No one really thinks it is anymore uh, since his second arrest and, you know, his alleged uh, suicide in prison. So it really depends on the individual. I mean, I think the most important thing is to separate speculation, um, you know, from Uh, a belief that you firmly have the facts and there are some things I feel I firmly have the facts on and other things I'm simply speculating and then I have a lot of unanswered questions and I always say you know which one of those they are I don't pretend I know something when I don't. Um, you know, I think if you're really going to examine a, a state crime, uh, you know, which is what a conspiracy often is, you need to go in uh, with humility and honesty and integrity and without partisan bias. And I think you need to be straightforward about your own bias. Um, you know, and as, as much as possible, try to not find things that confirm what you're thinking. Try to avoid uh, confirmation bias.
0: You, what do you think about yourself? You've you've become a, a, an institution almost <laughs> in your own rights. Um, on your Twitter page, you say, I'm just a girl standing in front of America asking it to stop a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. Uh, you're referring to not having a, a pack to buy your books. Uh, but you're more than just a girl, Sarah. You've got uh, 620,000 Twitter followers. You're a best-selling writer. You're an institution now. Do you feel you have a sense of responsibility in our age of hidden histories of telling the truth, of helping people make sense of the bizarre reality we seem to be living in?
1: I mean, yeah, I I do feel I have an obligation. I would feel like that if I had five followers. It's not the number of followers I have that does this. It's, you know, trying to follow my moral compass. And by the way, that I'm just a girl line was a a parody of um, Notting Hill, which is a terrible, terrible romantic comedy. Um, But yeah, you know, if I'm an institution, I don't know if I think of myself that way, but what I don't have is institutional backing. You know, I I work on my own and that's intentional. I've been offered jobs in institutions and I feel like they wouldn't give me the freedom to say what I want to say or to investigate what I want to do. And I'm lucky I'm in that position, um, you know, where I can live, you know, with creative freedom and write books and be able to still pay my bills. Um, It wasn't always like that for me. And it's not like that for a lot of folks, Uh, but it's the only way, at least I found, that I could talk about a lot of these really difficult Uh, topics that get people in power um, very angry. At me and you know their supporters get angry at me too and it's kind of across the aisle. But I am trying to get to the truth um, because I think we can't have accountability without the truth. And what I've seen in the last seven years, especially, is a lot of kicking the can down the road, pretending people um, you know can't see things that they witnessed with their own eyes, rewriting history in real time, um, you know, paywalls coming back, which makes it difficult for people to research things, things like that. And so if I can help remedy that situation. Anyway, I will.
0: You describe reality now as being uh, like uh, in a, a town in uh, northern Arkansas called Eureka Springs, and I'm quoting you here where no streets meet at a right angle. The town is built in the breadrock, captive to ancient geology, its buildings carved into curving cliffs and its trees erupting through layers of, of sloping. Uh, sidewalks it, it sounds as if it's a creation of Italo Calvino um but it's a real place Eureka, Eureka Springs in in Arkansas you think we all need to go to Eureka Springs quite literally or metaphorically to to make sense of our current surreal situation
1: I think mentally, we all kind of living, you know, we are living in Eureka Springs. You know, in Eureka Springs, you can literally enter a building on one floor that's called the first floor, and then you exit it out the back, and it turns out that's the fifth floor, and you're going down a, you know, rock staircase that's carved into the mountains. You know, this is an Ozark town. Um, It's also a town that's known to be magical. Uh, You know, that goes back to Native American times, but also um, gangsters in the 1920s would go there for the magical uh, spa cures. From their their hot springs um and it's known to be haunted uh in part because you know a number of great acts of uh cruelty uh were carried out there you know and they i described that in the vanity fair excerpt um that you just showed uh you know i like going there because especially during the trump era um you know i would stay there around christmas every year to break up the drive to texas which is where my sister yeah, lives. yeah you say they and- come people who
0: go to eureka springs like you they They come for the magic and the ghosts, and and America now is a ghost country, as you say.
1: Yes. It's a ghost story. Uh,
0: Your presentation of America is as a ghost story, which is the heart of they knew.
1: Yes, I mean that—that's what it felt like. And there's something um, perversely comforting of being in a place that just embraces that wholeheartedly, in which you have this off-kilter sense, and you don't know, you know, how to find your way around, and you just you wander and you observe things and you take things in, um, and nothing seems predictable, and it, it's just sort of there's a weird mental relief in that. But yeah, um, you know, you asked before about, you know, does they new have a heart? And I think of course it does. It's just the heart is broken. You know, my heart is broken about what has happened to this country, Um, you know, because I love this country. It's my homeland. It's where, you know, my kids are being raised. I'm very concerned about the future. And, you know, I'm concerned because I don't think it's hopeless. I think that there are things that can be done um, to make their future better. And I'm, I'm angry and saddened Uh, that despite the many warnings and despite the kind of predictability of a lot of this, you know, that there are all these antecedents and all these uh, recurring actors, so little has been done um, to preserve the future of the next generation and and make it at the least, uh, you know, tolerable, you know, and hopefully um, positive and and hopeful. I mean, that's that's what I I wish for. That's what I strive for. But, you know, reality is also kind of slapping me in the face at the same time.
0: Well, reality Sarah slapping all, all of us in the in the face. In, in a historical context, I think it'd be possible to argue then with this this magic, this ghost story of a country, um, we haven't discussed the role of religion. The place was founded as a little city on the hill. It was founded in the context of Christian mythology, founded on terrible crimes. Um, what is the role currently of religion? in this ghost story and what could it be what's the fix for all this can yeah. can can america become once again a little city on the hill you still seem to believe it that's your that's your view from flyover country you still maintain a degree of optimism
1: yeah i don't know if it if it's optimism and i don't know if it's for the shining city on a hill i'm not sure that was ever real because there's always a criminal underground uh lurking beneath it, um, you know, but do I think things can be better? Yes. You know, do I think the answer is a theocracy? Definitely not. Um, you know, I am worried about that, although it's interesting to me that, you know, there's the the people in power um, who I find, you know, deeply threatening um, and corrupt, you know, many of whom were in the Trump administration, but also just the plutocrats and oligarchs, etc., surrounding them. They're from a variety um, of faiths. You know, I, I don't think that this is really a religious matter and a kind of like doctrine sense. Uh, What they do share, though, is this uh, view of the future as a commodity, you know, as something to be hoarded for them and them alone. Um, And sometimes this comes across, you know, through their rhetoric as, uh, you know, an embrace of of apocalyptic um, thought. You know, we see the billionaires with their bunkers. We see, uh, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, Reagan to Pompeo just saying, you know, the rapture is imminent. It's that sense. I, I don't really care whether it's tied to traditional religion or not it's more the idea that people believe they're above it that there's a group that's you know selected survival for some of sort the of benevolent action
0: yeah uh, we did a, sh- a show about that with Doug Rushkoff survival of the riches. I want to read
1: his book his book looks really good yeah. and it, it looks um, you know pertinent to what I'm looking into as well
0: well Sarah uh, are you sleeping at night?
1: yeah i mean <laughs> not so much since 2020 um but you know no worse than when i first had uh babies and little kids so you know it's a mixed bag right,
0: you're how about you a great job, uh, making sure that none of us sleep at night your new book <laughs> is another horror story which is probably exactly what america deserves we get what we deserve and we get sarah kensia they knew how a culture of conspiracy keeps america complacent is there anything sarah to be enthusiastic about uh Hartman believes that, uh, for example, that the hidden history of neoliberalism is coming to an end with Biden. Are you in any way encouraged with what Biden's doing in America?
1: Um, Not so much. I, I mean, I think it's obviously a great improvement over the previous administration. I'm encouraged by the labor resurgence. I'm encouraged by, you know, the unions that are coming up. And I am encouraged that, you know, um, while a lot of powerful people don't want to reckon with the kind of information that I have in my books, um, regular folks do, you know, readers do, I do think we have an active, engaged citizenry that doesn't want any of this and doesn't deserve any of this. And I, you know, I am hopeful about that. I don't feel like people are apathetic and checked out. I think they're sometimes really getting really horrible, unreliable information. But I do think that um, they're interested in, in, you know, keeping this country afloat.
0: Well, there you have it. Direct live from her uh, St. Louis living room, Sarah Kenzie, <laughs> her latest book, They Knew, How a con- Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Wonderful new book. By one of America's, I think, most wonderful and magical writers, Sarah Kenzie. Sarah, you said you wanted to read uh, Doug Rushkoff's new book, Survival of the Richest. a good book. Anything else are you reading or want to read that you would suggest to our well, viewers? Well, now I want to watch
1: that. I want to read that Tom Hartman book because
0: <laughs> I've, yeah. I've been on his you know, show. Before I, I even... assume you've been on the Hartman show. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he's great. Um, I didn't know actually he had a new book out, but I'm going to get he's that. I'm, I'm a interested new book in that. He's even so... more
0: prolific than you are. He has a book out every year.
1: Yeah, well, that's I think why I didn't realize it was a new one, but I especially the title alone is kind of hooked me in. So you you did some good uh good promo there for your other guests. It got me uh got me interested so.